0: taking your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Our reading begins at verse 18. We will read through verse 27. It is not to be uh, overlooked that going back to the interaction with the centurion and the discussion about whether Jesus would come to his house or not, We then went on to a scene of the Lord entering a house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And now in this next pericope or paragraph, there's a discussion of the Lord saying, I don't even have a house. (laughs) The Lord is saying something important here, isn't he? The Lord the Spirit is teaching us who are followers of Christ that this world is not our home. Even should we find ourselves tonight laying down in a bedroom, on a pillow, on a bed, under a roof, let us not think that we have arrived because of that. It is but a temporary wayside for the Christian pilgrim. Let us pray and then read. Gracious God, bless us with hearing tonight. Grant that we would understand what we hear and believe it and that our hearts and minds and wills would be reformed by your word under the power of your Holy Spirit. Exalt and glorify the majesty and might and mercy of Jesus Christ before the souls of those gathered here. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 8, verse 18, this is God's word. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is God's word. There's a pastor who would often tell his young son, Son, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough to feel guilty, but they have not gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Then the pastor would say, son, be wholehearted for Christ. Now what you have just heard is a call to faith. It is not a call to work harder for Christ. It is not a call to be more heroic for Christ. It is not even a call to have more zeal for Christ those all spring from what is more fundamental here, faith. That pastor's words to his son is a call to believe on the full, the whole Christ. In our text tonight, Jesus is calling you to true faith, which is the same as calling you to be wholehearted for him. He calls you to abandon a half-hearted Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. And instead, he calls you to go so far with him that you are happy with him. Not miserable in your lukewarmness, but happy in wholeheartedness. It is the joy of faith, and it will not be taken from you. How does Jesus call you to this joy in our text tonight, this faith? Well, he does it by demanding so much from you that the only way you can pursue what he demands is by believing he is worth more than anything you could ever want out of this world. And that's the Christ that faith lays hold of. There is none other. There is no half Christ, no small Christ, no mixed Christ. It is the Christ who is so worthy that there's nothing you want in this world that compares. I want you to think about this. The reason half-hearted Christians are miserable is because they think Jesus is important. But they also think Jesus gets in the way of true happiness. Their true happiness is some thing in this world, some arrangement in this world, some way of life in this world, some status or standing in this world. It could even be a good thing. The half-hearted have an interest in Jesus, but a divided interest it is. They are only half-interested because they don't see Jesus as worth more than the whole total of all their other interests. And so a divided heart always thinks Jesus wants more than he is worth. Jesus is always a nuisance to the half-hearted, which means he is always put in second place. He always gets what's left over. Whatever zeal is left over goes to Jesus. Whatever time is left over goes to Jesus. Whatever devotion is left over, that goes to Jesus. Whatever willingness to suffer is left over, that goes to Jesus. The half-hearted will always pay costs for a lot of things in this world, but they won't want to pay too much for Christ. Half-hearted followers tell themselves they don't mean to deny Jesus but they also simultaneously are refusing to deny themselves. And so they end up trying to serve two masters, and they are soon devoted to one and despise the other. And what they need is true faith. Jesus speaks tonight in a way that gives it. That's what verses 18 through 22 are about. Jesus speaks in a way to give true faith to those who will be having ears to hear it. Now, before we go another step, don't get tangled up about all the talk of following in this passage. It's easy to think, well, I, I can't follow Jesus quite the way these people are because he's moving from a physical location and saying, let's go. And I, how can I follow him from one physical location to another. When we say follow, we mean the following that we see in the text, not in its geography and physicality, but the following we see in the text as they obey the word of Jesus Christ. How do you follow Jesus in the 21st century? Well, he told us in the Gospels, whoever receives my word is my disciple. Whoever receives my word will follow me. Beloved, if you agree with every word that Jesus has said, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you do not agree with Jesus, if you say, well, I'm with him 70% of the time, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not a follower. If you only want to follow him the 70% of the time, but not the 30% that remains, you are in our passage tonight. We've all been in our passage tonight, and it's very good for us to be there again. So our Lord speaks to the cost of following him, and he speaks in such a wild, demanding way because he wants to give faith to those who will hear him. Now, we hear from two different men. Two different men pledged they will follow Jesus. As Matthew Henry said, these men are of two different temperaments. The first is quick and eager, the second is dull and heavy. Jesus replies to a half hearted pledge that is found in each man, but found differently. And he replies to the half hearted pledge of each man with a whole hearted demand. A demand that is so great it will bring sinners out of the world to true faith in Christ. So remember this. Before we keep, I know I keep giving you these little soliloquies. Jesus came into the world to save men from sin. Remember this, what I'm about to say, because it helps you understand his wholehearted demands here. He came into the world to save men from sin. And the greatest sin of men is to love the world and not love God. John says that clear as day in his first epistle. Anyone who loves the world cannot love God. Jesus must break your love of the world. So here he makes demands of you that are so great, they only make sense if Jesus himself is the living God. Worth more than anything you or I could ever want from this world or find in it. So the first man's pledge, verse nineteen. It comes from a scribe. I will follow you wherever you go. This is the eager guy. He's bouncing like tigger. I will follow you wherever you go. There's enthusiasm in the declaration. But our Lord perceives insincerity. Our Lord perceives something missing. He knows everything that is in man. This man has not considered the cost of following Jesus. So in verse 20, our Lord says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus has just said, that insignificant creatures have better prospects for comfort and security in this world than the Son of Man does. And that goes for anyone who would follow the Son of Man. The scribe especially needed to hear this. Because scribes were accustomed to the easy life, the bookish life, They were honored in Jewish society, much like pastors were in this country in the 1950s. Calvin said, therefore, scribes were ill-fitted to endure reproaches and poverty and persecutions and the cross. But the Son of Man, the Son of Man was opposed by all the things that scribes are ill-fitted for. To follow the son of man is to give up honor in this world. To give up security and comfort in this world. To follow him, the one who is despised by the world, driven out of the world, crucified by the world. To follow him, you must believe the world's judgment of him is false. And that his testimony of himself is true. That he is indeed the Son of Man, and that the world is so captive by the devil and its own sin that it hates God's Son. The world that you might want to affirm you and applaud you and embrace you, it hates the Son of Man. It does. And if you say, Well, I know people in the world who don't hate Jesus, well, it's not the Jesus that is speaking tonight in Matthew 8 it's some other Jesus it's the mixed Jesus the half Jesus the Jesus that's kind of fits into a two masters love beloved if you do not believe this you will think the world is right about him and Jesus is not therefore worth all the trouble of following him Remember this, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, did not come to earth to settle down in its comforts. He came into this world to break people free from the power of Satan, to forgive their sins by his blood. He came into this world to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue into his heavenly kingdom. So listen now, when Daniel 7.14 reveals the Son of Man to us, Daniel 7.14 is not describing a glory that comes to Christ without suffering. Daniel 7.14 is describing the glory of Christ that comes after his suffering. Daniel 7.14 is describing Christ and his ascension. But what has already happened before the ascension? The humiliation, the suffering, the casting out by the world. Daniel 7.14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That glory in the clouds as he approaches the Ancient of Days is a glory that he has attained through suffering. Cross-bearing, literally. So to follow Christ is indeed to follow Him to that glory of Daniel seven fourteen, but first it means we will be just as displaced in the world as He was displaced in the world. Now there's another cost to following Christ, and that brings us into view of the second pledge: the cost of earthly respect. In verse 21, a second man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This man obviously has an interest in Jesus Christ. But his interest is divided, isn't it? He desires to first go and show respect to his father and then begin to follow Jesus. The Lord's answer to him is really quite shocking. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. A couple of things we need to consider here. First, it seems clear the man's father is not dead yet. He's on his deathbed. Not dead yet. We know that because in first century Jewish culture, a dead body was buried the very day it died. Within a day. If this man's father had just died, this man would not be here. He would be home preparing the funeral. So the father is not dead, but he is dying. Think of hospice. That's the situation here. The man wishes, therefore, to go home and respectfully wait for his father to die, and then to respectfully bury his father, and then to respectfully mourn his father. And respectful Jewish mourning could take up to a whole year because you would wait for the body to decompose and then take it back up again and put the bones in an ossuary, which is a bone box. The second thing to note is how important it was to respect a family member's death. In Jewish culture, a family burial took priority over the study of the law. It took priority over service at the temple. It took priority over observing a circumcision. It took priority over killing the Passover sacrifice. To bury one's father was a cultural tradition of the highest order in ancient Jewish world. And this makes our Lord's reply all the more shocking. Follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Jesus is saying, let those who are blind to the great worth of of the kingdom tend to earthly things. That's the kind of work they can do. They will not do the work of proclaiming the kingdom of God because they are dead to it. They will not do the work of obeying the king because they are dead to him. Kingdom proclamation is the work of the wholehearted. So whenever we must choose between proclaiming the kingdom and the standards of respect that the world is asking of us, we must always choose the kingdom, especially when it's a matter of commandment from the king. Now before we might think Jesus is a hater or a despiser of culture, we merely have to remember that he attended funerals, he attended weddings, but he was always fully awake to the urgency of the day. What was the day? The last day. He's in the last days. He's coming to say, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That men are dead before God. Dead in their trespasses and sins. That makes every day urgent. And dead men only come alive when the kingdom is proclaimed to them. So let me say this another way. Wholehearted followers of Christ will have more respect for the message of life, salvation, than respect for the customs of a world under a sentence of death. Beloved, let me state it plain. This is why Christians should be gathered in holy assembly on the Lord's Day, even if it requires us to withdraw from our families, even if it requires us to withdraw from our family's most beloved traditions, to be part of the holy assembly of Christ's church on the Lord's day, where we together bear witness in our praises to the Savior, praying and hoping that maybe some unbeliever among us will be cut to the heart and say, truly, God is in your midst. Isn't that exactly what Paul said happens often in worship assemblies. John McNeil, a Scottish preacher from 100 years ago, he took this passage to heart. His father died in Scotland while John was traveling through the English Midlands. McNeil had been advertised to preach at a evangelistic meeting the very day of his father's funeral. People would certainly have understood if he had canceled and had gone back home. Here's what he wrote. But I dare not cancel, for the same Jesus stood by me and seemed to say, now look, I have you. You go and preach the gospel to those people. Would you rather bury the dead or raise the dead? And I went to preach, he said. Beloved, in the first two pledges, the Lord is declaring his worth to the soul of man it is seeing the worth of jesus christ worthy worthy far more to you than even your own blood relatives worthy far more to you than the comforts and securities of this age it's when the soul sees his worth that true faith lays a hold of christ now let's take a look at verses 23 through 27 In these verses, our Lord calms a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And what sticks out in verse 23 is that our Lord Jesus is the one who wants to get into the boat. We should see verse 23 also in the light of verse 18. As this remarkable ministry of healing and exorcisms has been taking place in Capernaum at Peter's mother-in-law's house, the Lord is now saying to the crowd, I'm leaving. And he says to his disciples, let's go. Our Lord wants to get into the boat. It's his plan to get into the boat. And his disciples follow him into the boat. Matthew wants us to see, by using the word follow there, that the 12 disciples are followers, the kind of followers that other men are not. They are following him. But Matthew also wants us to see how Jesus is going to take this little beginner's faith of those who do follow him, the 12, he's going to take their little beginner's faith into his school and not only show them the cost of following, but he's going to bring them to the calm of following in a way they never themselves would have signed up for. So the lesson of verses 23 through 27 is this. The Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you, will deliberately shepherd you off the cliff of your competencies so you learn to stand on the rock that is immovable. In this lesson, he is working out in your own lives right now, even though you are on dry ground. You don't have to be enrolled in a sailing class to receive the shepherding care of Jesus Christ. This is how he takes a little beginner's faith and takes it to school. He is going to show his disciples that he is the rock cut from the mountain without hands, Daniel 2, the son of man of Daniel 7. He is going to show them that his power, his dominion, his salvation, it all belongs to them as well. That he shares it with them. But it is first given to them through faith. And faith comes through a revelation of Jesus Christ in his greatness, which always includes a revelation simultaneously of our weakness. Always. So look what our Lord Jesus does. He brings them into this crisis of competence. Get in the boat, and they are the expert boatsmen. This lake, Sea of Galilee, this is their home court. They know the habits of the wind as it comes down and changes temperatures through that Jordan River Valley. They know how quickly storms can kick up. They know their boat. The Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to take this little faith, he's going to shepherd them off the cliff to bring them to stop their trust in their competencies and trust in the Lord. Verse 24 again, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. Hmm, Makes you scratch your head. Why is he asleep? And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? I want you to notice a couple things. Our Lord has taken them into their school. He's shepherded them off the cliff of their competencies. But look how he cares for them. First, he deals with the problem that threatens them, and then he deals with the problem within them, their weak faith. So he relieves them, then he rebukes them. He does not test them beyond what they're able. He does not snuff out the little faith they have. He will complete this good work that he has begun in them, but he will complete it his way. And he does this with parents, pushes parents off the cliff of their competency. He does this with husbands and wives in the vocation of marriage, pushes them off the cliff Of their competencies. He does this with Christian brothers in churches. So Jesus first serves his disciples with great power. He speaks directly to both the wind and the waves. And when he speaks to the wind and the waves, there is no incantation, there is no magical dust he needs to sprinkle on the sea, there is no special dance that he has to perform. There is no sea god to appease with human sacrifice, if you know your history of the Trojan Wars, Agamemnon. There is but one god, and he is in the boat speaking to his own creation like a father speaks to an unruly child. And the storm immediately responds like the most compliant child. The winds cease, the waves flatten, and a glassy dead calm falls on the sea. And Jesus says to his disciples, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And this question right there is what gets to the heart of the matter. The disciples' great problem was not the storm. The disciples' great problem were not the chaotic circumstances. Oh, if we could remember this. Your great problem, Christian, is not that you're hated or not that somebody's not obeying a parent. Your great problem is not that your spouse doesn't like you anymore. Your great problem is not that your friends have turned on you. Those are painful things, no doubt. Don't pretend they're not. But the great problem is our faith. Jesus is an excellent pastor. How could we disagree with him? They had lost boldness and courage. They had slipped from a calm repose into panic because their faith on the open sea was in what? Their faith on the open sea was in their competence. And that would not do for men who were going to change the world. The Lord does not say to them, Boy, you, that must have been scary. He does not say, I really sympathize with you guys. He doesn't even say, I'm sorry I didn't do something sooner. (laughs) What does the Lord say? Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Do you want the Lord to say that to you when you are off the cliff of your competence? Maybe you don't but he must say it to you. Let's think like Christians here. Jesus is teaching us what we should be hearing from his word when all seems to be falling apart. This is the best question that can be asked, the best comment that can be made by the most excellent pastor that is making it, Jesus Christ, his question is a call to go looking for something solid in a chaotic world, a cursed world. And the only thing solid is the Lord himself, the Son of Man, who rules over creation, who rules over the curse, who rules over all chaos. Without faith in him, you will always measure your steps through this world by your own competence. Please believe that. Without faith in that Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7.14, you will always simply tiptoe through the world measured by the limitations of your competence instead of by the authority of Jesus Christ. And that is a very subtle effort then to make ourselves Lord, isn't it? The Lord of my of my step then becomes my own abilities. I can't love this person anymore. I can't love this husband anymore. I can't love these children anymore. Because it's chaos. I'm out of my depth. I'm off the cliff. It's exactly where Jesus has led you to teach you about your faith, to look up to the Son of Man, that he wants you to be in a storm. He knows where you are. He said, get in the boat. Our Lord's statement in verse 26a, that statement very, very clearly says and suggests there's another, there was another way for the disciples to handle this crisis of competence. He would not say, why are you afraid, O you of little faith, if there wasn't an alternate path to to take? Instead of looking at the storm, instead of looking at their peril, they should have looked at the sleeping son of man, resting in his own power. Resting in his own power. What repose for one so mighty? It belongs to him, doesn't it? One with dominion rests in his own power. Martin Luther hits the nail on the head when he fleshes out what they would have and should have done if their faith was not so little. If their faith had been strong, Luther says, they would not have been frightened by the wind and the sea, but would have thought, we will ride out the wind and the sea just like Jonah, who survived in the whale's belly. For we have the Lord of the sea with us, and even if we did not have him with us, we would find a vault in the depth of the sea where we could rest, remain dry, and not drown. Our Lord can help us and rescue us not only on top of the sea, but also under it. Beloved, sometimes what we're really doing when we are in a panic ourselves and the storm has come into our soul that's outside and around and nearby our life, when that storm comes into us and our faith becomes so small, what's really often happening is a lust of works righteousness. What? Is the pastor off his rocker? Here's what I mean. We often want our lives to look so tranquil and calm and so finely tuned and accomplished that we don't want to be known as somebody not a christian in a storm we don't want our life to be full of wreckage and wind we want an excellent marriage we want excellent children we want excellent friends we don't want to be lonely hated despised but beloved what if being lonely hated and despised And you're being calm and at peace, resting in the power of he who rests in his power. What if that becomes a testimony to the world of the great Jesus Christ, son of man? What if that's exactly why you have been led into that chaos? A strong faith is strong in Christ. And his strength, isn't it? Abraham had this kind of faith. Hebrews 11 describes him this way By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. What a storm! Abram, take your son to Mount Moriah and offer him to me. What a storm. What chaos that seemed to be. But he had faith, knowing that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Almost done, beloved. So how does our Lord Jesus Christ build strong faith in us? Well, he simply does it by revealing to us again and again That he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of every crisis. That he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of every resource. To whatever measure it is meted out to us, he has given it. To whatever degree it has been withheld from us, he has withheld it. Do you see how faith can cling to that? How faith can cling to Jesus Christ and endure all sorts of chaos? And the calmness of the Lord who commands the winds and the waves moves into the soul of man because that's where faith lays hold of the Son of Man. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for taking us into the school of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for testifying to our soul that our Savior Jesus is the Son of Man who has all dominion and power and glory and kingdom and salvation and he rules and reigns for us, not for those who are against us. He rules and reigns for those who love him, not for those who hate him. He rules and reigns for those who follow him and agree with his every word. And we thank you, Father, for how every word of the son of man has set calm in our hearts the calm that comes from his rebuking the chaos of our sin saying forgiven the calm that comes from his rebuking the chaos of satan be gone the calm that comes from his rebuking the chaos of this groaning creation be still and the calm, O Lord, that comes to our soul from his rebuking our most anxious hearts, saying, Be at peace. I am with you until the end of the age. O gracious Lord, give us this faith, this true faith, that sees in Jesus Christ all that he is as Son of Man, and that all that he rules and reigns over is being done exactly as it should be. Let us rest in his power. In Jesus' name, amen.